Reading out of Genesis chapter 4, verses 1 through 10, Adam made love to his wife Eve, and she became pregnant and gave birth to Cain. She said, with the help of the Lord, I have brought forth a man. The term Cain means brought forth, among other things. Later, she gave birth to his brother Abel. Now, Abel kept flocks. He was a herdsman and came and worked the soil. He was a farmer. In the course of time, Cain brought some of the fruits of the soil as an offering to the Lord. And Abel also brought an offering, fat portions from some of the firstborn of his flock. The Lord looked with favor on Abel and his offering, but on Cain and his offering, he did not look with favor. So Cain was very angry. His face was downcast. And then the Lord said to Cain, why are you angry? Why is your face downcast? If you do what is right, will you not be accepted? But if you do not do what is right, sin is crouching at your door. It desires to have you, but you must rule over it. Now Cain said to his brother Abel, let's go out to the field. While they were in the field, Cain attacked his brother and killed him. And the Lord said to Cain, where is your brother Abel? I don't know. Am I my brother's keeper? The Lord said to him, what have you done? Listen, your brother's blood cries out to me from the ground. Father, I pray your anointing upon your word, upon our hearts and our minds to receive, I pray. In Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. Now in consideration for those from the Costa Rica team who have been working all week long and just got back in about 3 a.m. this morning or so and they're very, very sleepy, um, we're now done with the service. Amen. You may leave. You didn't move? That's good. We're in a series entitled Origin Story. In any origin story, especially with some of the Marvel movies out and stuff, but in in literature in general, it tells something of the backstory of the individual. It gives us an understanding of the person, what motivates them, what has shaped them, what has defined them over time. And so we are in our origin story, the origin story of all mankind, and that has to do with um, the book of Genesis. And today we're going to be talking about uh, first blood. There was a situation recently, not terribly terribly close, April 13, 2001, a guy named Luther Castile walked into a J.B.'s pub in Elgin, Illinois, Chicago area. He had four guns, and he opened fire. He killed two people, wounded 16 others. At his trial, Castile was unrepentant. According to the Chicago Tribune, when asked by his attorney if he felt any remorse, Castile said this, quote, any feelings I have in that regard, I'll keep between myself and the Lord, unquote. He also said, quote, as ironic as this sounds, I'm a passionate giving person. I like to think I'm a pretty good person. I'm not one to hurt anyone that doesn't provoke me, unquote. I remind you, he just murdered two people and wounded uh, another 16. But he views himself as a good person as long as he doesn't get provoked. I think, unfortunately, this probably can characterize a lot of us. We're okay unless we get provoked, unless we get pushed in some fashion or another. Adam and Eve have just come out of the garden, and we talked about this last week. They have a child. They named this child uh, Cain. Some of the language involved implies that Eve may have thought that this was the man. And what I mean by the man is in Genesis 3.15, as we said earlier, um, God is setting up for the salvation. This is all of the scripture's salvation history relating how it happens. And in 3.15, he says to her, look at, um, there's going to be someone that's going to come out of your issue. There's a child of yours you're going to have through your line. 
and says to the, to the serpent, uh, you will bruise his heel, but he will crush your head. And this is pointing all the way up towards Jesus Christ, that there was a wounding that was not to death, but that his action on the cross crushes the head of Lucifer or of Satan. So with this in her mind, perhaps, she now has a child, the first child that would have been had you know, in humankind. And so naturally her mind thinks this is the man, this is the guy, this is the one who's going to, to bring salvation in some process or another and, and defeat this enemy of ours. Something's processing perhaps in her mind towards this end. Now let me ask real quickly first here in the gathering here today, how many of you are firstborn children? Let me see your hands. You know, what's really weird is first service had a, a we had a lot of firstborn types, you know? Um, how many of you are like a secondborn? Okay. Um, anybody that's a middle child? Okay, you're my people. All right. Uh, I, I'm, I'm kind of that weird mix. I'm between two sisters. And so as a result of some of that and some other things, I've got a middle child element, but I've also got a firstborn issue going kind of play. Now, one thing we won't take time on today, but as you'll go through scripture, you're going to find this. Even though the firstborn was to carry the family name and was to have special blessing throughout the scripture and history and, and a special role of responsibility, you find over and over again, it's the secondborn or a lesser child on the birth order that actually ends up fulfilling the things of God. Why is that? We can speculate. We don't take time today. Perhaps there's an arrogance that comes with firstborn. Perhaps there's a sense of entitlement that can come with firstborn. Maybe because I'm secondborn and all the rest of you are firstborn that we have attitude toward all of you. I don't know what it is. <laughs> Okay, that drives you firstborn types. Um, but, but there seems to be something of that. And we see this starting off right here. Cain is the firstborn. He's the one who's supposed to, to have certain traits of some type here. Eve even thought that he was the one, possibly, that was going to resolve things out for everybody. But we find that's not the case. There's a point in time where Abel and Cain... Um, are coming to God with an offering. Now, Abel brings the firstborn of his flock, and that's an interesting thing. By viewing the firstborn, he's kind of indicating that all of this belongs to you, God. By symbol, I'm giving you the first one, but it represents all of this. And it was an offering. And God smiles upon this offering, receives it. Cain, naturally being a farmer, brings, you know, farming-type stuff and uh, um, fruit, vegetables, whatever the case, his is not accepted. Some want to say, well, that's because this was a blood offering and this was not. There's no indicator that that was the case. Um, it just seems that they brought what they did. Now, how do we know whether it was accepted or not? Don't know. Again, speculation. It could be that, that um, whenever there's an offering that's acceptable in different places in Scripture, it's consumed by fire. They may have gone to the place where they knew God resided somewhat, the garden, who's still being guarded by the cherubim, this flaming individual with a flaming sword who's guarding the tree of life. Why? Because if man takes of the tree of life, he'll live forever. And the only thing worse than having the knowledge of good and evil and the ability to sin is to be able to have that ability for eternity. And so as a grace and as a mercy, he limits the days of man. So they may have brought it there, and, and somewhere in the process, maybe a fire consumed the one and it didn't the other. Either way, all we know is that one was accepted and one wasn't accepted. Um, when we try to look and say, well, well, what were the dynamics of that? You know, if it wasn't going to be about the idea that one was you know, bloody and one was not, um, we seem to have some sense of this in the New Testament. In Hebrews chapter 11, verse 4, it says, by faith... Abel brought God a better offering than Cain did. So it doesn't seem to have been the material. 
There was a faith. There was something, and he was commended as righteousness when God spoke well of his offerings, and by faith, Abel still speaks today, even though he's dead. Prophetically, there's something going on here. So something about the way, the intentionality, the thoughtfulness, the, the desire for relationship and intimacy, whatever the case may have been, something of the intent or the faith behind it that he brought, that Cain was more casual, more disregarding, things came easy to him perhaps, he's firstborn, entitlement, expectance, we don't know what the case was, but he, he did not come with that same degree of faith. There's something else that's part of this that appears to be prophetic even on the part of Abel. Abel's included um, by Jesus amongst the prophets as the very first one in Luke chapter 11, verse 50. He's talking to this generation and to the Pharisees and says, you guys are going to be held responsible for the blood of all the prophets that's been shed since the beginning of the world, from the blood of Abel to the blood of Zechariah. What he was saying was, for the Jewish Bible, from, from Genesis to Second Chronicles, which Zechariah is referenced into, because Second Chronicles closes out the Old Testament and the Jewish Bible. But you could also say that he was literally saying from A to Z, from Abel to Zechariah. Now, that's not legitimate because it was a Jewish you know, alphabet. But it kind of falls real nicely here. So from A to Z, from the blood of Abel to the blood of Zechariah, you guys are responsible for that innocent blood being shed. So he's included amongst the prophets. So what is the element that he was offering maybe prophetically? It's possible that by offering this first blood offering... He's, he's recognizing prophetically or by faith that there's something of blood that's, that, that needs to be offered up for the forgiveness of his sin or for a relationship with God. And so prophetically, perhaps he was operating as, as, as this way. One lamb forgives the sin of one man. Later, the Passover with Israel and Egypt, one lamb for an entire family pays a sin. Later, as the Day of Atonement is established in Israel as a nation, one lamb covers the sin of the entire uh, country. All this pointing, of course, to what we find with Jesus Christ as the Lamb of God, the one whose sacrifice literally provides for the entire world. We find in Hebrews chapter 12, verse 24, Abel being mentioned, to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. Okay, and we'll get to that in a moment here about this, this blood and what this is being talked about here, but there's a reference there. And so he takes this firstborn, this, this tithe type of this, and offers it this blood sacrifice in a prophetic way pointing towards Christ, and, and there's something that he's accepted on, but we do not find that to be the case with Cain. And Cain's response to this is that he's very angry his face was downcast. Why are you angry? Why is your face downcast? If you do what's right, will you not be accepted? All he had to do was what was right, and he would have been accepted. But the nature of man today, and very much in our country today particularly, is that we want to do what we want to do and still have that accepted. We don't want to do whatever we want to do and have that affirmed. To us, we've redefined love as that which is best for us as now affirming anything I want. If you deny that of me, then you don't love me and I get angry. When all we have to do is that which is accepted. So there's a sense of rejection that comes in here at this point in play. And then there's this imagery, but if you, if you do not do what is right, sin is crouching at your door. It desires to have you. It desires to have you.
Years ago, when our kids were small, there was a moment that stands out still to my wife and I. We were going somewhere, some event, some activity, and we were bringing um, our kids along with us. And one of them had a toy, a Lego, or something else he was playing with, and, and, and they wanted to bring it along. We say, you can't bring that because we can't have you playing with that. Well, okay, I won't play with it. I'll just, I'll just have it with me. And we're like, no, you don't really, no, I'll just have it with me. And so they're starting to walk out the front door with this item, committed to just having it, but not being able to play with it. And then they stopped, and without another word, stopped, turned around, went back to the landing of our house on the steps, put it down, said to themselves, no, I might be tempted, and walked out. And we're like, this is the most amazing spiritual experience we've ever had. Our child is Jesus. You know, it's like... I mean, it was truly shocking because I'm sitting here going, oh my gosh, this four or five-year-old kid has got more understanding of spiritual in this moment than most adults do. And, and I know what was in the mind here is this part that's since crouching if you don't master it. And so they walked away from it. In this case, though, Cain doesn't. Cain doesn't do that. So instead, what Cain does is what, unfortunately... Too many people in our country and our place are doing here today. He begins to have this serious case of sibling rivalry. It's not just the fact that he had lost. It's the fact that little brother won. It's not just the fact that he wasn't accepted, but that someone else was accepted. It wasn't the fact that he wasn't successful. It's the idea that someone else was successful. And there began to be this little attitude of what is referred to kind of as vindictive. And I've seen this develop increasingly even within the church. A vindictive attitude. Vindictive means to revenge oneself. It means to pass vengeance on someone else, to take punishment or retaliation for an injury or offense of some type. It's intended to cause anguish, hurt. It's revenge. It's unwilling to forgive. It's a hardness of heart. It's a callousness that whatever it is, it's not just a matter of of let's resolve this or let's argue this case. It's like, I want to hurt you. I want to cause you pain. And I don't want to see anything less than that for you. What causes a person to be vindictive? If you look into it, it says that jealousies, insecurities, negative thoughts, all those things start to burn inside And so this is what happens with him. Now, I'm not going to ask you today how many of you have even thought about killing someone, let alone how many of you actually have, and it's possible one or two people have. Cain is in that moment of time. Adam and Eve, for all their faults, were the original humans. They'd be like gods to us if we saw them. And Cain was one step removed. These were incredible individuals. And death, at least human death, had not entered the world at this point in time. Cain would have seen animals die naturally because because of the greatness of Adam and Eve and, and their descendants even up until Noah's time. They lived long lives. They were the originals. There was no genetic drift. There was no deterioration of the genome of any kind. But they would have seen animals die. Perhaps they would have had to kill an animal that was wounded or something else. He would have understood what it was. And so he begins to think about this towards his brother. And God warns him about what's going on. And he proceeds with it anyways. And here's the really interesting thing. It's premeditated. If you look at the past scripture, he says to his brother, now let's go out to the field. Well, why are we going out to the field? 
Well, I don't want to get any blood splashed on the good sofa or on the floor for CSI to find. Uh, let's go out into the field. So it's premeditated. Let's go out in the field. And we're just talking. We're just hanging out here. Just go, buddy, old pal. And then he kills him. He attacks him. After this has happened and, and Abel's died, the Lord comes up to Cain and says, where's your brother Abel? Because, you know, God doesn't have a clue what's happened. <laughs> he knows what's happened. So why is he saying that? He's giving him an opportunity to confess. He's giving an opportunity for reconciliation even after this horrible moment. Where's your brother Abel? I don't know. And then this line, the classic line throughout history is echoed. Am I my what? Brother's keeper? Think of that line. Think of that. Think of the coldness, the callousness, the harshness. Am I his babysitter? It's become in our society the ultimate statement of disregard for an individual. I'm my brother's keeper. I don't know. I don't care. I have nothing to do with that. It's a total show. There's a coldness to this. He's not just a premeditated murderer. He's a cold-blooded, entitled premeditated murderer. And the Lord said, what have you done? Listen, your brother's blood cries out to me from the ground. Cries out to me from the ground. Remember I mentioned in Hebrews chapter 12, Jesus, the mediator of the new covenant and the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. The blood of Abel cries out for retribution, cries out for justice, but the blood of Jesus cries out for forgiveness and reconciliation. It's a better crying out. But still, we're here in Genesis and we have to deal with what's just occurred your brother's blood cries out to me from the ground. In Detroit, we've got to put this in perspective because we don't get this today. You see, we're kind of immune. In the city of Detroit alone, just Detroit, not the metro area, just Detroit, 309 murders, 309 lives were extinguished last year. In our country, just the United States alone, over 22, almost 23,000 murders happened in this country. We see it on the news. We see it in our, in our dramas. We see it all the time. So we're soaked in this bloodshed. But if you think of it, at this point in time, there had not been that. This is the first blood, not just the first blood offering that, 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 that Abel offers up that points all the way to Christ, but this is now the first blood spilled of a human being. Nobody had ever done this before. And, and you find that the follow-up to this is that, that there's a curse that comes upon Cain, but he's not killed for it. And that's confusing because we talked a little bit about later on in Genesis chapter 9, a law is established. Human life is so valuable, being made in the image of God, that the only thing that pays for a life taken is a life given. And therefore, anybody who give, takes a life should be killed for that, executed, lose it. It's the only thing of value to, to, to bear that out. So why isn't Cain immediately killed? Oh, there's a couple of possibilities. We don't know for sure. It could be that God's grace still with Adam and Eve, and this is their, their, their son there, that there's a grace. Could be there's just so few human beings that, that we can't do this at this point in time. Could be perhaps, maybe, maybe people sat there and said, you know, wait a minute, this was, this was unique. This has never happened before. We, we, a human being actually killed deliberately another human being. That, that, that could never happen again, ever. Right? I mean, that's not like that could ever happen again, like ever, right? 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 
was the first one. Think about that for a moment. The devastation, the spiritual devastation, the emotional, all that. Adam, Eve, Eve who thinks this is going to be the one, this is going to be. And think of Satan underlying this whole thing that knows of his future and comes along and sits here and says, okay, there's Cain and there's Abel. They think Cain's the man. If not, Abel could be the backup. Now I've got a plan that they're responsible, Cain's responsible for his actions, we are responsible for our actions, but there's someone whispering our ear trying to lead us down a certain pathway, and in this case succeeds, and so the second son is murdered, and the first son is so compromised spiritually, so corrupted by the experience, that this is over. There'll be no one to come along and crush my head. It is over. End of the line. We find it goes on, and, and, and there's a curse that comes upon him instead of death. Genesis chapter 4, verse 11, when you work the ground, it's no longer going to yield its crops. You're going to be a restless wanderer. In some ways, it's worse than death. He wanders the earth. He's no longer be able to farmer. But, but catch, catch the line that comes across with this. This is, this is to me fascinating. So he doesn't get executed. He's, he, he's going to survive. He's going to lose his job, if you will, but he'll find other things to do out there. Cain says to the Lord, verse 13, my punishment is more than I can bear. Really? Today you're driving me from the land. I'll be hidden from your presence. I'll be a restless wanderer on the earth. Whoever finds me will kill me. My punishment is worse than I can bear. Cain didn't feel bad about his sin, but only about his punishment. This attitude didn't end with Cain. It only began with him. Like him, a lot of us only feel bad about our punishment, not about our sin. He's still self-absorbed. He's still caught up with this me, me entitlement. Even though he's executed and killed someone over here, he's only upset about himself. There's no reconciliation here. One of the clearest marks of sin is our almost innate desire to excuse ourselves, and then to complain about the way we are judged by others. One of the consequences of sin is that it makes the sinner pity himself or herself. Instead of causing that individual to turn to God, one of the first signs of, of actual new life, one of the first signs of actually coming to God in a salvational moment is that the individual takes sides with God against him or herself. I've done something wrong. God judges me on it, and I'm more caught with the judgment and my discomfort than I am of what pain and heartache I've caused out there. But if I'm truly understanding what I've done, if I'm truly comprehending the enormity of what's happened here, then I don't fight with God on that. I side with him and say, you know what, God? I, I so hate to say this, but you're absolutely right. You're right. In fact, you're gracious in your judgment. But that, that unfortunately, is not our friend Cain. He's caught up with himself, and people are going to hurt him. And so, interesting thing, he says, whoever is going to hurt you is going to suffer vengeance seven times over. And he puts a mark on Cain. We don't know what that mark is. 
he moves away and he, he forms a city east of Eden. And that term east of Eden has been used a lot. It's a sad term. It's, it's, it's to indicate a place separated from the garden, a place separated from God's presence. To move east of Eden is to move out of the very presence of God. He forms a city. He's got this mark. And he's told that there'll be seven times over. That there's going to be a make note of that. We see the beginning of, of a theme we th- see through Scripture, too, that the city of man is contrasted with a pastoral scene or the rural scene or the countryside. That there's something about the city of man that we build up and insulate ourselves from the awareness of God that we, we build. There's sin is often equated with the city and not so much with the countryside. It doesn't mean that sin doesn't happen here and there, but there's something about the city that we insulate. We build up. Our pride jumps up to us and we insulate. And out here, there's an awareness of God. Light pollution is so distinct today. I don't know how many of you would recall when we were children, you used to be able to, this far out of the city, you could look up and you could see the Milky Way spread across. And you can't see that anymore because the lights of men and the other things have grounded out and drowned out that item. And so there's this contrast. But he builds this city. He establishes himself east of Eden. He has descendants and the descendants go along. And in Genesis chapter four, verse 23, one of them jumps into place and it's Lamech. He says to his wives, notice he's the first bigamist, even though God ordained one wife. I have a tendency to say, why would anybody want to deal with more than one wife? <laughs> and I would say the same thing with the wives. Why would you want to deal with more than one husband? It's confusing, difficult, and challenging enough as it is. Okay? And I just saw somebody just hug their spouse. That's great. That was, that, that's a good thing. Lamech said to his wives, Adan Zilla, listen to me. Wives of Lamech, hear my words. I have killed a man for wounding me, a young man for injuring me, someone Maybe we were pounding nails together and he hit my thumb by accident. Maybe it was deliberate, but he wounded me. I killed him. If Cain has avenged my ancestor, if he's avenged seven times, then Lamech is 70 times seven. That's how much I'm avenged. Cain was a big time guy. He took control of his life. I'm even bigger and badder. I'm Lamech and I kill him 77 times. And there's this arrogance that jumps into play. It doesn't end there. The end of the chapter brings us to Genesis chapter 4, verse 25, but put a pin in that 77 times and that seven times and that Cain moment. Put a pin in that one for a moment. Genesis chapter 4, verse 25, Adam made love to his wife again. She gave birth to a son and named him Seth, saying, God has granted me another child in place of Abel since Cain killed him. Satan thinks he's succeeded in, in, in destroying and corrupting the firstborn and, and murdering the secondborn, but now there's a new birth, and, and Seth, and Seth becomes the lineage through which Jesus Christ ultimately is born. But there's another dynamic here that I want you to capture real quick, and so I want to throw a graphic up on there real fast, if you would. These are the descendants of, 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 of uh, Cain and of Seth. Abel's line ends. Cain is corrupted. And we see it come down to Lamech at this one point in this boastful statement. Nobody else's statements get added in, but his do to show just the depravity of the line, the arrogance that's grown even more entitled and more uh, disregarding the things of God. Abel's gone, but Seth is established. And if you follow the line of Seth, I find an interesting, curious thing. Here where Lamech is at, the guy parallel to him in the birth order, if you will, is Enoch. Yeah, some of you know what that means. 
Enoch had such a relationship with God that at one point in time it says he walked with God so much that, that he just wasn't anymore. God just took him. He was one of the few people to bypass death. God says, you know, you're operating on such a plane. Hey, just jump up here. And so you've got the line of the firstborn that's descending deeper into darkness and arrogance. And you've got the line of this thirdborn, if you will, of Seth, who ultimately ends up in Jesus, coming to the point of Enoch as a contrast to that. And then Genesis 4 ends with this. At that time, people began to call on the name of the Lord. It doesn't mean that there wasn't relationship beforehand because we saw that already with Abel, Adam, and Eve, etc. But there had been such a decline, such a degradation through the line of Cain that now there's a redemption through Seth. And some people refer to this as the first revival. At that time, people began to call on the name of the Lord. There began to be a revival of some type. Now, real quickly, in the time that we have left, I need to get this across to you because we talked about the seven times and the 77 times and all the rest of that stuff. And that should be familiar to some of you. And if it's not, let me ring your bell for a moment. Let's go to Matthew chapter 18, verse 21. At the end of the line of Seth is Jesus. And Peter comes to Jesus and asks, Lord, how many times shall I forgive my brother or sister who sins against me? Up to seven times. Peter's feeling magnanimous. He's picking a divine number of seven, thinking, I am so good. I mean, I, I know I've got to forgive him, but I mean, and I, I mean, most people do it two or three times, but you know, I'm thinking seven because I'm so good. You know? And that's Peter not quite thinking past the moment. And Jesus answered, I tell you not seven times, but what? Does that ring a bell? You think Jesus just pulled that number out of the air? You think he was just being alliteration along with seven? Oh, let's just be clever about this. Say 77. No. What he's linking back to is the arrogance of Lamech. The disregard of Cain. All this is tying back to Genesis. And that's where he's sitting here and saying, no, 77 times. It's the echo of Genesis 4 going all the way up until this time. I feel like the guy on TV, but no, there's more. <laughs> you see, right now, some of you are, are feeling really relaxed and cool because like, yeah, this is good history, good knowledge. Yeah, thank God I never killed anybody. Well, it doesn't really apply to me today at all. You know, I don't, I don't murder, you know, I mean, unless I'm provoked. We got a problem though, because Jesus keeps talking in Matthew. In the fifth chapter, he says, You've heard that it was said to the people long ago, You shall not murder. Anyone who murders will be subject to judgment. But I tell you, anyone who is angry with a brother or sister will be subject to judgment. Again, anyone who says to a brother or sister, Raraka, is answerable to the court. And anyone who says, You fool, will be in danger of the fire of hell. Still feeling good about yourself? You see, it's not about just the murder of the flesh. It happens to also be about the anger that refuses to be pacified. This is the translation here. The anger refuses to be pacified, that seeks revenge, that broods over the moment. A self-righteous anger that looks for revenge. Vengeance, vindictive. This is what Jesus is talking about in this passage of time. Now we have to emphasize, Jesus is not saying that anger is as bad as murder. That would be very confusing for us here. That someone who shouts at a person in anger has sinned as badly as someone who murders another person in anger. Jesus emphasized that the law condemns both. 
without saying that the law says they are the same things. They're not. The laws of the people, the laws that were in place could only deal with the outward act of murder. But Jesus declaring that his followers, that we are supposed to understand God's morality and addressing not only the end point, but the beginning of murder. As I said, this word angry and what Jesus forbidding is this anger which broods, the anger which will not forget or forgive, the anger which refuses to be pacified, the anger which seeks revenge. Anyone who says to a brother, sister, raka, is answerable to the court to call someone raka, express contempt for their intelligence. Someone calling someone else a fool meant contempt for their character. Either one of these broke the heart, the law of the heart, if not actual murder. The commentators have translated the word raka to mean nitwit, blockhead, numbskull, bonehead, brainless idiot. But it's almost an untranslatable word because it describes a tone of voice more than anything else. It's the whole accent, the whole accent's rather on, on the accent of contempt. It is the word of one who despises another with arrogant contempt. Nothing redemptive about this person. They're not even on commonly vulgar words to be used, but it's this attitude of contempt. Jesus made it clear we don't get off just because we didn't do the act. If we see something or someone, if we see something less than the image of God in another person because we don't agree with them or because they wounded us in some way or they offend us in some fashion, then we go to that moment. really disturbed after last Sunday. A moment that was meant to be humorous and to draw out the point that we are to treat one another with respect got turned in for a moment. It was perceived for a moment of time as a slander. And that would have been one thing if you went, oh, but it wasn't. There was an attempt for an eruption of applause. Uh, if, you, if you did that, I don't want to make you feel bad. Maybe you got distracted for a moment. Maybe one person started clapping. Oh, we're supposed to clap on this one. You didn't realize what was being said or done. We are not saved by the blood of elephants or donkeys, but by the blood of the lamb. Where did you just go with that one? Neither Republicans or Democrats are going to save us but only Jesus Christ. Does that mean you shouldn't be politically involved? By all means, but be politically involved. I could even have a bias towards one of those things and be politically involved. But we can't lose sight of who we're supposed to be in Christ. And as we said last week, we have to realize that what's behind some of these things that are very opposite of the things of Christ is an enemy. That we can hate. That we can attack. That we can say, Satan, be behind me but not the individuals who are deluded and misled. We can argue that. We can stand against it. We can have an, even an anger over some of the faults of that. But if we call them raka, if we lose our witness, 
If we lose our salvation because of our anger, if we murder someone in our heart and mind because we're so resentful over rights we've lost and, and the twistedness that our society is going to, if we're more caught up with that, then our soul shrivels within us and we walk the way of Cain and we justify it. Are you your brother's keeper? Yes, you are. And so am I. When we get wounded, are we vindictive? Or do we lean into the scripture that says, vengeance is mine? Who says that? Saith the Lord. Now see, anywhere in there it says, Randy, or any of your names, that it's ours, that God is so weak that he needs us to stand up for him and punch someone in the face. He's God Almighty. And then you know what? As I listen to all this and as I speak all this, I find myself getting angry. I find myself wanting to think that if I was in the day of when these prophets were, I wouldn't have killed them. That somehow I'm wiser, better, brighter. And the reality is I'm not. But there is something about the word of God that checks my soul. You know, I read Jude 11 and it says that they have taken the way of Cain. I say that's not a way that I want to take. So you see, this message really was far more dangerous than you ever thought possible. And it does relate to you. And it does relate to me. What is the heart and attitude that we show? Not just one another. Not just our brothers and our sisters. But a world that is increasingly dark, where the enemy is increasingly rising up, and there's darkness that's there, and we see righteously that there's a problem with that, and we need to engage that with strength and with passion, but not with hatred or violence. If we do, we give our enemy a tool. I like what was said once. The church is not to be the slave of the state, nor is it to be the master of the state, but it is to be the conscience of the state. And the only way we do that is by pressing into the word of God and then applying that. If this stuff, is this just for Sunday morning? Is this just for a little conversation in our clubhouse? Or is this something we take into our lives that we look to our political opponents and we'll treat them the way that Christ would want to have them treated? That we look at that person in our home that's causing us such mayhem and heartache and, and on us such that we'd still approach them as Christ would. We can disagree. We can argue that. But not with a vindictive behavior. And that when we do sin, when we do cross that line, when we do what we shouldn't do, we don't try to defend it and say, no, it's because of this. We sit here and go, God, you're, what you say, yep, that's, that's, that's me. Forgive me. One more time, one more time, God. How many times do I have to ask this? Evidently, one more time. Forgive me. I want your presence. I don't want to live east of Eden. I want to live as close to you as I can. Father, this morning as we consider the first blood spilled in this world, unfortunately and, and tragically, it's not been the last.
And look how that prophetically pointed to you and, and, and your work on the cross. We're so aware of our own sin, our own shortcomings. God, I pray that you would shape this message, this moment, this time into our heart and mind as we pause just to reflect for just a moment, Lord, as we just sit quietly and just reflect in this next moment of time. That we would not follow the ways of Cain, but we would pursue your heart. First John chapter 3, verse 10. This is how we know who the children of God are, who the children of the devil are. And anyone who does not do what is right is not a child of God, nor is anyone who does not love his brother. This is the message, the message that you heard from the beginning. From the beginning. We should love one another. Do not be like Cain, who belonged to the evil one and murdered his brother. And why did he murder him? Because his own actions were evil and his brothers were righteous. Abel pursued things with God with an intentionality, with an intimacy. Cain just got caught up with himself. It's not enough just to say we didn't murder someone. The question is, have we acted in a vindictive fashion with contempt, with slander? God, I pray that you would shape us as your church. Not one of us is perfect, but we are your children, and we are striving to be in your image even more so than how you initially even made us, God. I pray as we continue these conversations, as we continue to go through this origin story, Lord, that we would be shaped by it, not just for a moment of conversation on a Sunday in our clubhouse, but that it would affect how we interact, what we post, what we say, how we think. Shape us as your people, we pray. We commit these things into your hands in Jesus' name.